Thank you for listening to the Shanghai Community Fellowship Podcast. To find out more about the SCF community, listen to sermons, and upcoming events, visit us at shanghaifellowship.org. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Shanghai Community Fellowship Online Teaching. And we're glad to have you here on this day. I'm not sure when you'll be watching this on our YouTube channel, but we are, of course, in a Lent series leading up to the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus here in the spring. This is still February 2024. So, again, not sure when you're watching. You may be kind of watching right along with us, and so you're already watching it uh, Uh, in the end of February with us. So we are in this series. We started last week. It's the series of Lent, uh, preparing for, as I said, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus on on Easter Sunday. So we're getting ready to do that. That's going to be the last last Sunday of March 2024 will be Easter this year. Uh, In case you weren't aware of that and wondering, when is Easter this year? So it's uh, uh, a little earlier um, uh, in the year, and it comes at the end of March, last Sunday of March. Now, um, as we as we said, uh, Lent is a time of preparation. It's a time of taking off and putting on, as you if you will. You know, and there, and, and and we mentioned this uh, in the first in this series a week ago that that uh, the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor to to uh, explain and show what happens for us as we come in to the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light, out of darkness. We are walking through a process of following Jesus, being transformed into his likeness. And Paul uses the metaphor of taking off clothes and putting on new clothes, taking specifically taking off the old clothes and putting on the new ones. And so that's a, so so during the time of Lent, uh, Christians for literally hundreds of years have have used this time of the year. Now, there's nothing there's nothing called Lent in the Bible. I want to make that really clear. There's not a chapter somewhere that said how to do Lent. It was just. Uh, good, sincere, well-intended Christians who said, hey, you know, this would be a great time of the year to help us to remember that this is what our lives should look like, being transformed into the image of Jesus. And we all started really good, and we all started changing clothes and putting on the new and taking off the old, and then we got distracted, we got tired, we got whatever, and and we stopped uh, or slowed down, but there's still a lot of uh, exchanging uh, the old ways for the new that needs still to take place in us as we are transformed all from head to toe, as they say. And so um, these well-intended, good brothers and sisters in Christ all those years ago said, this would be a good time of the year to remind ourselves of that and maybe even to think specifically well, what, what, what is it about me right now in this particular time of my life, the year of my life? And I'm thinking now Psalm 90, verse 12, you know, teach us the number of our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that, that, well, here's something I could take off. You know, this is a piece of clothing. This is a cap. This is a pair of shoes that, that beat up and old, and they, they re- I really need to change into something new. And um, and this is this would be the perfect time right now to go ahead and do that, um, and so uh, so that's what that's what Lent is all about, and we could say a lot more about Lent, but we're going to stop right there. You know, we last week we 
we also uh, introduced um, really a theme that is going to kind of take us through this series uh, for Lent 2024, and that is um, Jesus telling us that for him, the whole heart of, of, of how he is approaching um, the Father and how he is bringing the kingdom, how he's just being Jesus, um, is to carry out this uh, greatest commandment. And so, you know, when, when Jesus is asked one time in Matthew 22, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And, you know, that might have been a trick question on the part of the person asking. Um, it, it probably was. If we're trying to check out Jesus' orthodoxy and legitimacy, you know, will he give the right answer? You know, and there are hundreds and hundreds of, of commandments. So, you know, it was a little tricky, you know, got to get the right one because there's one that's the greatest and of course, Jesus gives the correct answer. It's to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And, um, uh, and then Jesus does something um, uh, uh, amazing here and really, like, incredible because to this prayer, to this greatest of all commandments, Jesus does what is, you know, in his context, unthinkable. He adds to it. I mean, Jewish people have been praying that prayer and saying that word and repeating that commandment for thousands of years, literally every day of their lives. And here comes Jesus to say, okay, we're, I'm going to add to that. He doesn't take away from it, but he adds to it by actually quoting another uh, commandment from the Bible. He says, and the second is like unto it, Matthew 22. He said, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, author Scott McKnight called this the Jesus Creed. It captures the very heart of how Jesus just does life um, by loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as he loves himself. Now, you got to know that, that when Jesus says that, it's not like he's saying, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's the greatest commandment. I, I don't personally live like that, but, you know, I, I probably should, and, I mean, I try, and, you know, I try to do my best, you know. No, no, you got to know that when Jesus answers the question, he's doing more than answering a trivia question. He's telling us this is how he lives. This, he lives this 24-7. This is who he is. And furthermore, that if we're following him and we find that our life now is in Christ, this is how we live, loving God every day of our lives with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as we love ourselves. You know, uh, Jesus... Uh, was going to change so much more than just the greatest commandment. And if that's all he did, that, that would be earth-shaking. But he's, he's, he's turning everything upside down and inside out, or right side up, if, if you will. Because one thing that Jesus is going to change is that he's going to change the whole cycle of living and dying, living and dying. You know, that whole cycle of living and dying, he's going to change that to living and dying, and then living again. Living, then dying, then living again. Uh, there's no shortage of people uh, in our lives today that would tell us that, you know, yes, we live, and then we die, and that's that. Your life is over. There's no afterlife. There's nothing that happens after that. 
you're you're just it's it's over game over uh jesus changes that paradigm and changes that reality to say you can live the life you were intended to live to live yes and die but then to live again this is the change that jesus has brought and then the cycle of living and dying and living again we like jesus now live not only looking forward to or moving toward our own dying but now we are looking forward to and moving toward our own living again. Jesus did this well. He lived toward his resurrection, and he prepared for his dying. Right? He lived toward his resurrection, but he also, he also prepared for his dying. He numbered his days, as the psalmist wrote, Moses actually, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 90. He numbered his days and gained a heart of wisdom, living toward his resurrection and preparing for his dying. So in this series, we're looking at six stories from the life of Jesus where we see him living by this creed, loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as he loved himself. And these six stories from the life of Jesus, it's, it's, it's like a series of crises and tension points and the, the kind of experiences, you know, that we can have, any of us have had, where if we've lived long enough, we look back and say, you know, that year or that experience or that move, that changed everything. It was a, it was a watershed moment, as they say. It was one of those moments in our lives where things, we look back and say, that's where it started, that's where it ended, that's where things changed. And in Hyde tonight, we look back and we call it that. Sometimes those moments are, are, are very dramatic for us. Uh, sometimes they don't have to be dramatic, they're actually quiet and, and, and filled with resolve. It was just a quiet moment between, be, between you and God, and you said in a prayer maybe to yourself and to the Father, things are going to change starting today. And they did, and they did. And sometimes they're known only to us. No one else knew. You didn't share that with anybody. Just between you and the Father, Father God, that was a moment in time where things changed. God was with you, and he led you. So here today is story number two from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 35. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And to, uh, of course, John the Baptist, you might be familiar with, one of the, maybe the last great prophet and Elijah, uh, a prophet from many, many centuries before Jesus. And still others, uh, they said, you're one of the prophets. Then Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter, really speaking for all of them, said, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them in response not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are all uh, of Judaism's, uh, the Jewish people's leaders. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, there Jesus is stating Maybe not, you can say he's predicting the future, but he's really making a, a statement about the future. And so when it, the future does come, it's one of those statements where they're going to go, that's right, Jesus said that it would be like this, and now here it is happening. 
And so we, we know that, that he's prepared them, right? Um, after three days, he will rise again. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and started to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now, if that sounds harsh to you today, it would have sounded harsh the day that Jesus said it to Peter. It was a harsh and hard saying. He said, you do not have the mind or the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. Today I want to look at three big ideas that are coming from this story in the life of Jesus. And the first big idea would be this, knowing who Jesus is creates opportunity. Knowing who Jesus is creates opportunity. The second big idea would be this, this is the way, the cross and service. This is the way, the cross and service. And number three, big idea number three, perception is reality. Perception is reality. All right, let's take a look at these one by one. Knowing who Jesus is creates opportunity. Now, of course, we know or uh, you may not know that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. You know, uh, especially in the early centuries of Christianity, there was a lot of wrestling over wh who was Jesus and, and, and did he come from God? Was he God? And, and if he was God, did he remain God when he was on the earth as the man Jesus? Did he leave his divinity in heaven and, you know, took it off like clothes and say, I'm going to put on a new coat, you know, and I'll leave the old coat at home? Uh, you know, and, and so in the end, what, what they determined, the Bible was teaching, is that Jesus was fully God and fully human, full stop. Not partially God, not partially human, not left his divinity behind and picked up his humanity and put the humanity back on the shelf and picked up his divinity again. No, Jesus was a human person fully. You know, over the years of Christianity, uh, you know, the Christian people, the church is kind of at times swung back and forth, emphasizing Jesus' divinity, sometimes emphasizing his humanity, uh, but he was always and still is fully God and fully human. I like what Greg Kokel has to say here about describing the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a person just like you and me. And you know, sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. Perhaps, perhaps we're the ones leaning in one direction or another. You know, we tend to see Jesus in his divinity, and, not, and of course, that would be right and appropriate because he is fully divine. But because we are just humans, and it's hard sometimes to hold these big ideas in our heads at one time, we might begin to forget or not take into consideration that Jesus was a human person just like me, just like you. He experienced life as we do. Through joy and sadness, he experienced life through compassion and anger, rest and weariness, delight and suffering, friendship and betrayal, uh, all that we desire, all that we dream, all that, we, all that discourages us, all that delights us, all our hungers and our hopes, our distresses and our discouragements are all true of Jesus as well. And while Jesus is, of course, fully human, as we said, he's something more than being 
fully human as you and I would be. Because Jesus would say of himself that he existed before he was born. That any sin he forgave would be forgiven. That the honor due to the Father, Father God, is also due to him. That the final judgment of all things was going to rest on him, on Jesus. And that anyone who was ever thirsty or hungry could come to Jesus and they would be satisfied by him and in him. And anyone who trusts in him will live even though they die. Now, these are incredible statements to make, and no human being would make them, or at least no human being probably of sound mind would make these. We're fully human, but we're not divine really in any way. But Jesus being fully human is also more than a person, a human person. You know, uh, in our time, uh, the time that we live in, uh, you can go on the internet, and you can go on just about any social media platform. Just pick one, and there are a lot of them, as you know. And you can find a human, a person, making about any claim that you could possibly imagine. Someone's claiming to be a bunny rabbit. Somebody's claiming to uh, come back to life dozens of times. This is the 37th incarnation of this one person. I mean, there, there are multiple claims uh, in, uh, across the world. And, and so for someone to claim that they are God, that they are divine, that they're a bunny rabbit, you know, in the day that we live in is actually not that shocking. Uh, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. But in Jesus's day, this kind of claim, what Jesus was saying about himself was shocking. It was, it was shocking. We have to kind of put ourselves back in that time and realize what Jesus was saying about himself was shocking, amazingly so. People would find, people would find this uh, 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 not only shocking, but some people would find it actually unforgivable. All right? Now, again, keeping with Jesus and looking a little closer at who he is, that was the question, who do people say that I am? Uh, Jesus didn't say that his teaching would do all these wonderful things. Just follow my teaching and, and you will be forgiven. Just follow my teaching and you will give honor to the Father and this and that. You know, just follow my teaching and you will be healed. Jesus was saying that he would do all of these wonderful things. It was going to be about him. It still is. Jesus' identity is so important that, that when that he asked his closest friends, right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, he asked his closest friends, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter gets it partly right, and then he gets it partly wrong. He gets it right, Jesus is the Messiah, he's right about that. But he gets it wrong when he says that Jesus does not have to suffer in order to be the Messiah. He's completely wrong, and, and in fact, this particular identity of Jesus and definition of what it means to be the Messiah, and we're going to talk more in just a minute about what is the Messiah, what is that role exactly, but identifying Jesus as the Messiah, as Jesus would, would define Messiah, was so essential and important that he gives this very strong and harsh rebuke to Peter. You are wrong. No, you, you called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, right? Because the identity of Jesus as Messiah is that important. In his day, Jesus was someone who could not be written off. Now, you've encountered him as a man. You've encountered him as a human, 
But he's also saying and doing these incredible things like no other human would do or say. But here's the thing you need to see about Jesus. People didn't laugh him off. They didn't write him off. You know, uh, writing, writing someone off is, if you're not familiar with that term, it, it's, it's to basically ignore that person. I just, oh, they just wrote me off. You know, they didn't pay any attention. They didn't, Jesus was not interpreted or understood as funny. No one said, oh, that Jesus, he's always just kidding. You know, he's, he's such a tease. He's just always kidding around. Nobody responded to Jesus that way. He, he wasn't that kind of a person. No one said, although uh, they accused him, some people accused him of being mentally unstable. For the most part, uh, no one understood him to be that way. He was not socially awkward. He did not have a low EQ. And he was not ignorant, unknowing. When professional soldiers came to arrest him, they returned without Jesus. They didn't arrest him because they said this, no one has ever spoken like this man does. And when his closest friends were once rescued from a storm that Jesus stilled with a word, they were terrified and said, who is this man who even the winds and the waves obey him? In real life and in real time, Jesus was clearly more than a man, more than a human person. He was fully man and fully God. And so he asked them, the first question, who are other people saying that I am? Now, so right around uh, Matthew chapter 8, I'm in Mark chapter 8 right there, the other people are saying things about Jesus. Some people are saying, uh, astonished by the things that he's been doing. They're saying, this man is a healer. This man is a supernatural healer. And they were right about that. Some people said that he was a sorcerer. Now, they were wrong about that. And some people said that, oh, that's, that's just a hometown boy come doing real good right now. You know, the people of Nazareth saying, well, you know, we know him. That's Mary and Joseph's son. And they were right. That is Mary and Joseph's son. But he is so much more than the hometown boy. Uh, some people said, well, this is some kind of mysterious reincarnation of John the Baptist or something. Or some people said, this is Elijah, that ancient prophet who's come, some kind of taken uh, shape and form in, in the person of Jesus. And other people said, well, man, he, he must be a prophet. Well, the things that he's saying and doing, he's got to be one of the he's got to be one of those Old Testament prophets from, from days of old. Now, these roles are great and powerful and God used men, individuals just like this, but all of these roles describe someone who prepares the way. It does not give to Jesus the role that is uniquely his because Jesus is just not another person to prepare the way. Jesus is the way. Speaking for the others, Peter answered, I'll tell you who you are. You are the Messiah. Now the title of the Messiah is a title and a role that was right for Jesus. As they say, Peter was spot on. There were, in Jesus' day, many, many expectations surrounding this particular role. Actually, during the time of Jesus, there was a heightened awareness and sense of anticipation that this would be the time for Messiah to come. You know, like sometimes in modern times, uh, if we, when we're experiencing great natural disasters or wars, um, exceptionally so, flooding exceptionally so, fires exceptionally so, you know, there's always someone who's going to say, oh, the, the, this must, these must be signs that we're at the end of the days, the end of times, right? Well, during Jesus' day, they were saying similar things, and along with that was the anticipation that this person called the Messiah was coming and, and, and would come. 
And although there were many, many different expectations about what the Messiah was going to do and how he was going to do it, everyone would have probably been agreed that, number one, this was going to be a unique person. You're going to be able to clearly distinguish this one person from everybody else. <clears throat> they would come and they would introduce God's kingdom to the earth and to the peoples of the earth. And, and, and this is important too, very important to not miss this, that this Messiah character would bring God's final act, like the last act of a play. Um, this is a final revelation. It's not, there's nothing else after that. The Messiah is bringing the last revelation of God. He's going to bring the last, basically, final movement of the Father. And probably everyone would have agreed on that. The, even the word Messiah was like a trigger word. It was a trigger uh, for all kinds of hopes and fears. So for Peter to speak out to Jesus, you are the Messiah, and then just as important for Jesus to receive that and say, and he didn't say, no, 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 guys, no, 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 seriously, uh, don't call me that. You know, no, you know, he, he receives that role was a tipping point and an opportunity. I remember, um, uh, I, I, this is a, a bit of a, a, a familiar, maybe too familiar, too familiar little uh, story. But when I thought about tipping point, you know, I thought about taking my children to one of those water parks, you know, uh, maybe you've been to one of these. There's actually uh, one or two at least here in Shanghai, you know, where we live. I've been to water parks in different countries of the world. And, you know, they have water slides and there's pools and for kids, uh, 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 river raft kind of a thing and big giant funnel you go through on a raft. It's a water park, right? And I've been to several of these things, like I said, and, and uh, a lot of them have, you know, way, maybe two stories up or maybe not that high, but uh, pretty high up. Um, uh, a giant bucket, you know, and 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 a big, a giant spout uh, with water coming up, and they've got it physically uh, engineered so when the bucket reaches a certain point, a tipping point, it 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 tips and it empties all the water that's in that budget, then that bucket, and and the fun part, if you're there, and all the kids and their parents. Uh, uh, stand underneath that tipping bucket, and then you're just showered with that bucket full of water, right? And, and that's the image that comes to my mind when the Messiah has come, and in the Messiah, he will bring the kingdom of God and all the, all the, all the fullness of what God is bringing in and through Jesus the Messiah, and the kingdom is like that bucket of water. It's just, it brings it to a tipping point, and and. There's an opportunity to come and to know Jesus as the one who brings the kingdom. And then that water of the kingdom, just that eternal life, that water Jesus talked about in John chapter 4, it just falls on those who are standing below. Everybody gets wet. Everybody receives. Everybody is full. Buckets are, everybody's individual bucket gets full. Uh, and there's love and there's strength and there's rejoicing and there's more to share more to give away. Uh, the kingdom comes in Jesus the Messiah, and it brings a tipping point, and it brings a blessing along with it. We get underneath it, underneath, as they say, the spout where the glory comes out. And we do things that we see Jesus doing, particularly loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as we love ourselves. The second big idea from this story in the life of Jesus is when he said that this was the way. 
the cross and serve us. Jesus warned them in response to Jesus's, or Peter's uh, declaration that he was the Messiah. Jesus responds by warning them not to tell anyone about him. He then begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Why did he warn them not to tell anyone about him? It was kind of a, don't tell anyone about this yet, because there were so many expectations concerning the Messiah, most of them wrong, that Jesus wanted a core group of people those who were closest to him, to really understand the true nature of this role, the Messiah, and how Jesus fulfills that role, the role of the Messiah. So he wants to spend time with them. He wants to kind of unpack it. He, and here we go. He wants them to see that the Messiah is going to suffer. That the, in, the, in, the, in the role of the Messiah, there will be a cross, there will be a death, a dying, and of course, there will be a resurrection. And Jesus is the one person there that day, and even today, he shared this with us, who actually knows what it does mean accurately uh, to what it means to be the Messiah. Here's, here's some of the things that Jesus said. He said, God did not send his son, referring to himself, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This would be the work of the Messiah, to save the world through the Messiah. God would send his son. The son of man came to seek and save the lost, Jesus said. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Messiah calls people to repentance. Jesus said of himself, the true Messiah, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. He's talking about his resurrection. No one has taken it away from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Here we're getting closer to the heart of this. The Messiah is going to be someone who offers his life for others. And lastly, Jesus would say, Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man, again, a reference to himself as the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, he uses this word ransom to describe his service. A ransom is something that is paid. It describes both a price and a substitution. For, let's say, a hostage, right? Someone who's in jail. Someone who has been condemned. A ransom is a payment or a price that is paid for the life of that person. And not just a payment or a price, the exchange of money, if you will, but also the substitution, one life for another, one body for another body. Jesus has paid a price and substituted his body, his person, for each and every one of us. And furthermore, he has done so for all of humanity. Jesus has substituted his one life for the lives of every person who ever lived, who lived now and will live until his return. And the price was greater than any indebted or compromised person could ever pay. I owed a debt I could not pay. You owed a debt you could not pay. You were compromised morally and spiritually as I was compromised morally and spiritually, making it impossible for me to pay this price. Not only that, but, but my body was corrupt and corrupted. I'm going to die. And only someone who would come 
and live without corruption and without compromise could possibly bridge the gap, pay the debt, and substitute themselves on my behalf. Think about it. The humanity of humanity itself has committed a great sin against God. We've destroyed his world, and we have destroyed each other. Who could possibly bring, what person could possibly bring justice to that situation? What one person could possibly bring justice to what we as humanity have done to this world, done to our planet, and even more critically, done to each other? The answer is no one. No one of us could bridge that gap or pay that price. It would take someone of such purity and perfection. And so in the plan and heart of God, God himself would come to be that one person. He owed a debt he did not, uh, he paid a debt he did not owe. He served to substitute himself because he could, and he was the only one who could. And the outcome of this is not so that we can go back to our old lives. The outcome is, hey, my debt's been paid. Somebody has substituted themselves for me. I was in jail. I was condemned. But this man came and took my place. And now what am I going to do? Well, I'm just going to go back to my old life. I'm just going to go back to the farm. I'm just going to go back to Cleveland, Ohio. No, no. He comes to substitute himself for us so that we can not just have a better life, but that we can have a new life. Someone said one time to me, they had never been exposed to Christianity. And when they first heard the gospel, that that was the thing that registered with her. I was listening to them talk about Christianity, and I heard them say that in Jesus, you don't just get a better life, you get a new life. And she thought to herself, that's very different. New is better. New is, is different than better. And it caught her attention, and she moved forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we should live, but don't. Jesus traded his life for ours. I like what Tim Mackey, author Tim Mackey, said here. These disciples just don't get it. They think following King Jesus will mean fame and status and importance. But Jesus makes it clear that following him is like dying and carrying a cross to your own execution. It means rejecting violence, pride, and selfishness, and pouring out your life for, for others and acts of service and love. Some, of course, in this world are literally going to die. They are going to suffer a death, a physical death, because they've chosen to follow Jesus. Others will suffer physically. They'll suffer financially. They will suffer setbacks because they have chosen to follow Jesus. Maybe you are one of those people. But certainly, every one of us must ask ourselves, what needs to die in me in order for God's will to come forth in my life? And is there anything that I need to set aside so that I can be open to what God wants to do in me. Lastly, thirdly, the big idea from this story, from the life of Jesus, as he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved us and loved others as he loved himself, is that 
Perception is reality. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. I've heard it many times over the course of my life. Dale, Dale, don't forget, Dale. Perception is reality. Dale, why are you getting? Why, why, why are you upset? Why, what did you think was going to happen? Perception is. Why didn't you? How did you not know they were going to react that way, Dale? How did you not know that that's the response you were going to get? Because perception is reality, and that's just a way to say that that we we will, for the most part what we're dealing with and what we often are reacting to and responding to isn't necessarily some kind of objective factual situation uh, or the facts of a circumstance, but the way we perceive them, right? It doesn't, by the way, this doesn't mean that there isn't such thing as objective truth. It's just simply saying that for the most part, most of us find ourselves thinking about, reflecting on, and responding to the way we are interpreting the life that we are living. So Peter hears Jesus say that he is going to die and give his life as a ransom for many, and his response as it runs through his filter, as he perceives it, is to say, absolutely not. The Messiah will never suffer. That can't happen. Jesus, you're wrong. I hate to tell you this, man, but you know, you're way off on this one. That will not happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. Jesus, you're wrong. Well, it turns out that, of course, Peter is wrong. Everything that Peter and his friends, in fact, for most people in Jesus' day, uh, told them that the Messiah was not what Jesus was describing. To them, it was unthinkable. To them, it was, and as I said earlier, it was unforgivable to even think like this or to, to accept what Jesus was saying. Of course, this would be Satan's great hope, right? That, that Jesus would not suffer the cross that, or, or, and, and for the sins of the world, that he would not offer his body on the cross and that he would not be resurrected. Satan would like nothing more than that. Hope, hope, he hopes Peter is right and Jesus listens to him. When you look more closely at the responses that people are giving to what Jesus has to say about the Messiah, how he really is, both emotional responses and otherwise, you get this real sense of how we are perceiving Jesus. Of course, you have Jesus or Peter's rebuke of Jesus in chapter 8, verse 32, but in chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus gives basically the same message. This is the Messiah. He will offer his life. He will die on the cross, and, by, and he will be raised from the dead. But they hear that die on the cross part, and they just get stuck right there. They can't believe it. And they respond by rebuking Jesus, by not understanding, the Bible says, um, by, by, uh, by becoming very fearful, like, Ooh, what's going to happen? Oh, this is, this is terrible. It's, it's very frightening. The disciples, by becoming just astonished, just blown away, as we might say, uh, where I'm from, just blown away by what they're hearing. Um, again, filled with fear. And some of them become just indignant. You know, like, you know, sometimes you, maybe you do this and have done this. You don't like what you're hearing. You, you, you just almost don't know how to respond, so you just get angry. You know, you just get indignant. You know, like you just don't like what you're hearing. You just don't want to deal with it, and so you just get angry and indignant. These are the responses of the disciples as they hear Jesus define what it means to be God's Messiah. I'm going to offer my life. I'm going to substitute myself for you and for the, the people of the world. I'm going to offer myself my perfect life to redeem and save and rescue those who are perishing. 
Jesus is redefining what it means to be the Messiah. He's reinterpreting the cross. He's demonstrating the heart of the Father. And I want you to hear this today as we apply this, because this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is going to do for you and me as we follow Jesus to the cross and to the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is in our lives and with us so that he can help us not just live with our own odd and peculiar and sometimes sinful perceptions so that the Holy Spirit can interpret Jesus for us. What a wonderful gift that the Father has given to you and me, that Jesus has given to us. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us interpret our own lives. So when we go, wow, this has been happening to me. I keep getting this experience. I keep hearing these same kind of, I keep getting into these same conversations. Uh, I got fired last week. I'm, you know, I got you know, this or whatever. You know, and we're wondering, what does this mean? I'm following Jesus. How should I understand? How should I interpret my life? How should I interpret the events of my life? How should I understand them? Perception comes with the help of the Holy Spirit through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. He will define. He will explain. He will interpret through the filter of the cross of Jesus and my cross and through the resurrection of Jesus and my resurrection in Christ. I love the way Paul captures this in Philippians 3. He captured it this way by saying this about himself. For me, basically, I want to know Christ. I want to know him, of course, in the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want that? Power. I'm power. I want, the, I want a powerful resurrection. I want, to, I want to know Christ in power and strength and victory. Just walking on the clouds, as they used to say. Yeah, I want that. Me too. But he also says, I also want to know him by participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You know, the Bible tells us that God has put within the heart of every person, within every person, there is a desire for a kind of life. Let's call it a quality of life that can only be found in God himself. You probably know what that means. You probably know what that feels like, those thoughts that, you know, like, like when you ask yourself, you know, it's got to be better than this, right? I mean, about your own personal life, maybe at times where you shook your head and say, there's got to be, there's got to be more than this. It's got to be better than this, right? Or like me, maybe you watch the news, you watch the things that are happening across the world. You see the hatred, you see the bitterness, you see the death and destruction. I mean, I go on and on. You could, you know what I'm saying. And you ask yourself, there's got to be a, there's got to be a better quality to life, right, than, than this. And that desire for a different kind of life, a better quality of life, some something that it seems like we're missing, but we're close. It could, it's there, but we, we, we can't quite reach it. Well, that desire is in us. And that desire comes from God himself. And you know what it says? It says God puts that desire in us because that kind of life that we're desiring is the life that exists in God himself. It's the life that, that 
that he lives, if you can put it that way. And that's where we'll find it. In the heart of God himself. And God puts this into our hearts, this desire, so that we'll go looking for it. That we'll search for it. But we find out that sometimes, if not many times, we're not very good at looking for it. And so what we needed was for him to come to us. And that's what he did. It's like a king who removes his crown and sets aside his royal scepter, taking off his royal robes and putting on the clothes of a common homeless person, a king that gets low and then dies the death of a criminal, all so that he can reach and save his own. You know, it's not by coincidence that in Jesus' last day who was and is that king, that he would have been crowned, but not with a crown of beauty and majesty, but with a crown of thorns. That his clothes would have been taken from him, and instead they would have put on a man's robe upon his shoulders, and then they would mock him. And that he would die literally in place of a criminal named Barabbas. Jesus in the Gospels, go and read them, is living out the very act of God of ransom and substitution so that we might live. By the way, in case you didn't know, this is not the Jesus that Islam talks about. And this is not the Jesus that Buddhism attempts to absorb. This is not the Jesus even that atheism knows. And No, this, this is another Jesus. And this is the Jesus that you should come to know. If you do not know this Jesus, who gave his life for you so that you might live, then today is the day to know him, to call on his name. I would encourage you right now, after this talk, after you've done listening to this, you want to just you know, hit, the pause, or hit the pause button right now if you want to. Call him out by name, Jesus. Just call his name out loud, Jesus. Just call his name out, Jesus. Let me hear you. Say, forgive me. You might say, help me. You might say, heal me. You might say, I'm tired and I can't search anymore and I can't try anymore. Call on his name. Receive life through his name. In the name of Jesus. Let me pray a prayer that you might pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. We call on his name. You gave us his name. It's, his name is your gift to us, to use, to call, use my name, he might have said. And when we do, we find that we have access to you and all the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the love that is your presence with us. And Father, as we call on that name, we are really 
also inviting you to step into our lives right now, not as our, not, 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 not to manipulate or control or order around, but for you to come and serve us, yes, serve us, but as you uniquely serve by offering yourself to us that we might live, and we will live in your name. Forgive us. We've been so full of ourselves, so prideful, just so, just so into ourselves, wanting to call it our own way, but that's over. Now we fully surrender to you, Jesus. Forgive us. Meet us here in this space right now as we call on Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening today. And uh, stay with us during this series during Lent. We'll be back on this YouTube channel. If you would want to stay with us through this series as we make our way toward the celebration of the resurrected Jesus Christ. God bless.